survivors and welcome to First Aid Spray, a Resident Evil podcast by fans for fans. This is a very special non-numbered bonus episode of the show. We previously discussed in great detail, something like four and a half hours worth, our reaction to Netflix's Resident Evil show, the good, the bad, everything in between. With the show's recent cancellation, we are joined by a very special guest to talk about the behind the scenes of the show and do a little bit of a post-mortem. My name is Cy and joining me for this discussion, we have Kelsey, aka Mr. KDB. Hello. It's Moist Owler, aka James. Hello. And our very, very special guest, the visual effects supervisor on Netflix's Resident Evil adaptation, Kevin Lingenfelser. Hello, everyone. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Thank you for uh, putting some time aside. I know it's it can be tricky with time differences as well. So we are working with eight hours of difference right now. But we appreciate you being here, Kevin. First of all, how's it going? Good, good. Excellent. Okay. So we're going to sort of bounce around a bit. Obviously, the cancellation of the show came out within the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been an interesting time on social media, to say the least. We'll certainly get to that. But we wanted to sort of like go right back to the beginning and sort of get to know you a little bit better and your history in terms of work and with Resident Evil. So I guess the most obvious place to start is how did you get your start working in visual effects? Boy, yeah. Um, Let's see. As of, let's see, January of next year, I will have been doing this for 30 years now. Damn. Uh, Wow. Started in 1993. Um, I was born and raised in michigan um but i've been you know geek at heart kind of thing mm. you, know, you know saw star wars in the theater and you know saw you know a lot of you know films that kind of jumpstart people's passion for visual effects you know mm. you know early on you know i grew up at that time i was six years old when i saw star wars um so i kind of knew i was in, very very interested in that um in visual effects or just you know just in general how 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 was this kind of thing achieved how was it done Mm -hmm. it further cemented that that kind of took things in a whole same trajectory but i was more interested in that that kind of horror aspect of that and you know and and how grounded that film was how truly unique and how believable it was um and so you know, did you know, did the whole high school, but when it came to um going to a college or anything like that, and then I decided, you know, no, 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 you know, I was also really heavy into comics at the time. So I knew of a school in all of all places, Dover, New Jersey, um, uh, headed by this very, very famous comic book artist, Joe Kubert, who's he's got two sons now, Adam, very famous comic book artist. Joe's mm-hmm. passed on. But he had a school, you know, in Dover, and it was just, it was called the Joe Kubert uh, School of Cartoon and Graphic Art. And so I decided to apply, except like 300 people a year. So I, I got in, I did that from like 89 to 91. I graduated high school in 88. Um, and then they had like a small computer animation shop, and it was all Mac, two E's or whatever, two C's, whatever they were very rudimentary you know animation software i can't even remember what it was called um but they also had the classics you know the teachers were all either working artists or retired like the letter 
you know, artist, uh, teacher that I had, you know, was uh, the guy who created Dondi, this very famous comic mm. back in the day. And then uh, I learned uh, figure drawing from one of the greats, uh, former student of a, of a wonderful artist named Bern Hogarth, uh, very famous. Uh, and we had a down shooter for our animation, so we actually would do animation cells and we would actually shoot them as part of our process. So did that, like I said, for three years. Um, came back home to Michigan, uh, and then about a year later, I'd found like a possible connection at um, ILM, and uh, this guy named Ed Jones, and he was leaving ILM to start a company in, in Hollywood, because uh, ILM at the time was up in San Rafael. Um, and so he was starting this company with Kodak called Cinesite. And the first thing they were going to do was this restoration of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs because it was, you know, a hot mess, basically. <laughs> Full of scratches, dirt, you know. When they were yeah. shooting the cells, there's a there's a sheet of glass that goes on top of the cell to hold it in place and shoot. And those things can be, if not careful, they can just, they're just like dust magnets. So basically, we, we started doing that at Cinesite, and it was a frame-by-frame you know, and it was done at 4K. So I think the resolution at the time was like 4096 by 2048 pixels. <laughs> it was wow. painful, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, very, very tedious, very slow process. You would basically go by quadrants, you know, four quadrants or even eights, you know, yeah. and just mm -hmm. go through. We even had to remove the, you know, back when film was prolific, you know, they would have a real change. And the real change was noted by like a, a blip in the upper right corner and it was this round shape you know oh, yeah. and we had to get rid of that as well because we were working from you know combination of negatives and um prints so did that and that's all cinesite was supposed to be but ed and it's kind of like infinite wisdom decided no, no 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 let's you know let's do some visual effects so we started very very um slowly you know because the place didn't have a rep yet for that. So we started with mm -hmm. wire removals, simple kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so the very first film I worked on, my very first film credit, was the 1993 film uh, called Demolition Man. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's in, the, in the credit list there. So we did. I did a lot of the wire removals for the fight sequences and stuff like that. And we did some, you know, eyeball scanning type stuff. And um, we also helped with... You know, when uh, uh, Rosalie Snipes' character was frozen at the end of the film. Mm. And we had to do a whole international thing where, if you remember the film, there's a whole thing with, you know, the product placement with Taco Bell. And um, so for the international release, we had to go and change that to, or was it the other way around? I can't remember if it was Pizza Hut or Taco Bell. I can imagine it got changed to Pizza Hut, I <laughs> yes. would guess. A bigger yeah. international presence than Taco yeah. Bell, which, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's so they, crazy. Yeah, so we had to do a bunch of these shots are <laughs> with the logo on it, change all that stuff. And then from there it kind of bloomed, you know, I worked on uh, True Lies, um doing some hard, hardcore just wild stuff, stuff they would never do now or you know, just shot. And and that was one of those films, it's like to this day I still go through this where, you know, we we see a lot of times the films out of context as visual effects artists. We don't get to see the whole thing. And and True Lies was one of those films as shots were coming in. 
I was just like, oh my god, this movie's gonna be the biggest piece of shit. I, I <laughs> like there was there were these shots with you know the horse when he jumps from the building to the other building and the horse stops and he flies off. There was like a wire on the horse that had to be removed. There's a scene where on the bridge, the infamous bridge that was a combination of miniatures and, yeah. and location shooting uh, at, in the third act, um, where the bridge is severed. You know it's been blown in half, and one of the bad guys he he pumps the brakes and he's teetering on the edge and this yeah. pelican lands on the, on the roof of the, the van or whatever. That thing had like eight wires on it <laughs> and they went all over the dude's face. And so this was at a time where whenever you did wire removals, it was once again, it was kind of like the snow white thing where it was a frame by frame tedious yeah. process. It, procedural methods weren't really in place yet. And what I mean by that is, you know, even with automated methods, you still have to have an artist behind it. But now there's an infinitely, you know, there's a lot more software that can handle things like that. Back then, it was all done frame by frame. Mm -hmm. So did that and experimented with, started experimenting with uh, compositing. So I was at Cinesite for like 10 years, you know, and I worked on stuff like Waterworld, Air Force One, Armageddon. Um Truman Show. The last two films I did there were <laughs> Envy, a little little known film. It was a packed cast directed by Barry Levinson, uh, starring Jack Black. And, um, oh my God, I'm forgetting uh, his name. God, it had Christopher Walken in it, Rachel Weisz. Um, mm. The main guy. Oh, Stiller. Oh my God, Ben Stiller. And did that i even try i would travel sometimes like i did a, like an eight, uh, eight week stint in uh, uh london when they opened that facility after us so i could work on the lost in space film that was being done uh over there so mm. did did some shots for that as well the the one and with the, matt leblanc yeah with joey yes because <laughs> i luckily i did i did i thought it was a pretty cool sequence at the time i did the sequence where um Gary Oldman's character, you know, uh, professor, you know, was in a hologram room, didn't know it at the time. It was in the middle of the desert. And so we shot all these plates and then it turned out to yeah. be that, okay, you know, it was a hologram. So I did that sequence. I didn't work on any Matt LeBlanc stuff or any of that, that f***ed up looking monkey. Um, <laughs> I was just about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> that poor thing went through, it went through Puppet, it went through CG. Oh yeah. my God. Anyways. Um, so did that. I was there for 10 years. Like I said, they shuttered Cinesite Hollywood in 2003. And then, so from there, I kind of shifted over to digital domain hmm. and, uh, in Venice, California. And that's where my eyes were really opened. Um, so I started working on, um, I robot was the first big one. And that was a huge one. A lot hmm. of shots in that film. Um, we did all the, the NS5s, as they were called, and um, yep. very elaborate stuff, motion capture and whatnot, facial animation. Um, so worked with on and off with them for a while. Worked on the third Pirates movie, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Which one was that? Deadman's Chest. I, I get I get them confused that now. Did, yeah, thank you. And um, I did the sequence where Beckett, Commodore Beckett, and his ship are nuked. And he's coming down the stairs as his ship is just ripped apart and was oh, shot. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's the sequence I did. We're up for an award for that sequence, matter of fact. Um, it's kind of memed to this day as well, which is fun to see. You see it. Yeah, yeah. it's a gif, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's immortalized, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So that was that was a cool cool thing. And then uh, my brother had opened up a studio at the same time, so I helped him out periodically. I'd bounce back back and forth between uh, DD and um, uh, Furious Effects. And then the last thing I did, I did 10 months in Vancouver with them on a movie called Jack the Giant Slayer, which no one saw. Um, Brian Singer film, uh, Giants. Um, gnarly stuff, though. I mean, a lot of great shots in it, but it just didn't, it wasn't marketed well and it wasn't, you know, received well. Um, after that, I went into Ender's Game and that was the last thing I did at DD. And then I switched over to Episodic and that's what got me into, you know, doing. At first, it was broadcast show. You know, Marvel at the time had this thing called Marvel's Agents of Shield, so I did that yeah. on and off for about seven years. Uh, we were nominated for two Emmys during that period, um, which was hardcore for a broadcast show because all our competition was, you know, cable streaming hadn't quite kicked off then. But I also worked on stuff like um, American Horror Story. Nice. I did three seasons of Preacher. I did the first three seasons of Preacher, and I was the production side supervisor and the overall supervisor. Um, that was that was a fun show, but that was one. It's funny because there's a lot of similarities between Preacher and this iteration of Resident Evil, where you know Preacher, I thought, oh, they're going to do an adaptation because that's what everybody mm-hmm. talked about was just like. Let's do you know panel for panel. At one point, it was going to be a movie, so obviously it wouldn't have been that. Yeah. Mm. But I always knew it needed to be series. <laughs> and then I got the scripts, and it's like, okay, all right, I don't quite understand what's going on, but I love yeah. the property so much. I was like, okay, f- it, you know. And I still, man, that pilot that we did, I still love that pilot episode. How the three characters were introduced, yeah. the visual effects we did for it were great. The first season is still my favorite season. Second season, it faltered. We did some good stuff. Work, our work was consistent, but the story just got kind of wild. And then third season was good as well because we got to do Hell, yeah, Santa Killers. I, that I enjoyed bringing to life, you know, you know. And I got to meet. I still have the, you know, I still have the picture from the pilot episode. I got to meet Garth Ennis, and I got to meet um, and talk with Steve Dillon before he passed, the artist on Preacher. So those were highlights. Awesome. Of my, my career and working on that show and then it just got to a point where on that on that show i was i was it i was you know i can't think of a better way to say it but i was the guy i'm not talking about ego yeah. here it's just I, it, the buck just stopped with me visual effects wise yeah and prior to that i would been working with people and i didn't have and this is really no one's fault necessarily but i didn't really have a mentor per speak i didn't have anyone any anyone supervisor that i felt okay this is the guy i want to emulate what i ended up learning for my career more than anything and it was just as valuable was okay this is what you don't do mm-hmm. as a supervisor this is what you don't do as um as you're working on a show and that honestly that that kind of knowledge is invaluable because it helped me i knew as I was doing other shows, okay, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. You know, it gets very political in terms of, you know, how you have to navigate your interactions with the EPs 
and every everybody a part of the um, every HOD head of department that you're working with, wardrobe, special effects, makeup, you know, you name it, locations, whatever. Um, so I've, after about six, seven years there, I was like, all right, you know what? I just want to work for production. I want to just go for for it. You know, I'm, this is I'm getting to a point where I I just want to be the one calling the shots. So yeah. I found out Netflix was doing this series. All I knew was Netflix was doing a Resident Evil series. That was it. I'm like, okay, fine. So I started, uh, I had a name, a guy by the name Jason Sperling. And Netflix, the way they work is they have these things called visual, visual effects managers. And each manager gets a show or multiple shows to manage. And they're responsible for shepherding it through. And they can, basically, they don't hire the supervisors what they do is they get the names, the supervisors, they get a pool of supervisors in, and then they go to the EPs and say, Hey guys, here's your list. And then you're interviewed and so forth. And so I went through that vetting process. I interviewed with Andrew, him and I hit it off. You know, he expressed to me that he was a fan of the series. He seemed to know um, more than I would have thought, honestly, about the series. Um, and then so he was interested in finding out, OK, where I was coming from, where my interests lie, what I wanted to do. He, he gave me examples of the type of creatures that were going to be in the show. I'm like, OK, I'm fine. I'm in. You know, I was like, you know what? I didn't care at that point. I was just like, let me just do this and let me bring the best version of these creatures to the screen as possible. You know, because I had grown up playing the games. You know, I played the first game in 96, you know, and um when I got my first, you know, PlayStation. So when the first game came, I played it, played all the other ones. I've seen all of Anderson's films. I've gone to the theater and seen them, and I enjoy them for what they are. Mm -hmm. I saw Welcome to Raccoon City while we were working on our show. Um, how was that, like, just in Because obviously there was a lot of talk in the fandom how so much stuff was being made at the same time. That, you were working that, on it. Was there that, competition or was it more just, you know, how did you see the movie in comparison? It was weird because, you know, um, you, you know, both things were shepherded by Constantine. You know, Constantine mm -hmm. still has those rights to the to the name and the series and or whatever films. So it was weird. And I, I mean, personally, for me, you know, I'm not an EP or whatever, but I there's no way in hell I would have done that because when it mm -hmm. when it first started, there was nothing but confusion yeah and so why we were shooting and people were posting pictures from um where was it where did they shoot toronto or montreal i forget where they shot the mm -hmm. the the movie anyways people thought that was the netflix show people yep. would you know yeah. say hey and it's like oh jesus christ no that's not us you know mm -hmm. And I, I remember knew. actually when we were covering on the news because obviously we were getting sort of drip feds of information and obviously it was little bits of leaks and stuff. We had to clarify several times to lots of different people because uh, they couldn't, you know, didn't know what was heads and what was tails of what. And we had to kind of keep track of what it was and to tell people, oh, no, this is one thing. This is the other. It was really a strange time. Yeah, It was. And, and what Constantine should have done. And I. You know, I'm not trying to point fingers here, but what they, they really should have done is they really should have said, hey, welcome to Raccoon City. And that was the other thing. It took them a while to even find a name. It, they didn't yeah. have that name, yeah. actually. Um, so they should have been clear and said, hey, this movie we're doing, that's an adaptation. That is literally Resident Evil 1, Resident Evil 2. 
you know, like it or not, you know, we're taking those two stories and kind of yeah. smashing them together and making this. And that one was supposed to be touted. This is for the fans. This is for the fans. And then what they should have done with ours is they, they should have been very clear about it and said that this is not an adaptation. What this is, is just this is kind of think of this as another story. Um, I think, you know, honestly, once again, hindsight, I don't know to what extent Constantine will do a postmortem on it. You know, um, I get why they involved the Wesker name and stuff like that, but, uh, you know, maybe, mm. you know, hindsight, they would have been best served to not go that route. You know, even Lance, you know, killed it and probably brought the best version of that character to life, uh, mm. in my opinion. You know what I mean? He yep. gave him, he gave him some humanity before that he was just he was just kind of like a ken doll with you know with sunglasses <laughs> yeah i've never been a western fan man he's yeah. a cheese ball um <laughs> my friend it's just it's just how i feel no i'm, but, I'm with you completely yeah you know it's like so when people you know got into the whole race swapping thing and just the idiocy that started i knew we were in trouble i knew and then they posted the infamous you know cw photo of the cast and I knew, yeah. all right, here's another nail in the coffin. This is this, <laughs> this is going to be fun because I knew at that point I knew I know what those poor cast members went through on the on the film. Yeah, I knew the racists yeah. were going to come out in droves, and they did. They did not disappoint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they couldn't stand the fact that you know the show was a you know it was very diverse people mm-hmm. of color. Um. And then you also, it was a primarily female cast too. And you, I, there was some griping about that as well, but that kind of died down more than anything else. Um, so I kind of knew my producer who, who, you know, he has a younger son and he doesn't play video games. I play video games. I have like an Xbox, I have an S and an X and I have a PS5 and I played, I played village while I was working on the show in South Africa. I had actually, that's where I got my Xbox Series S. I couldn't get an X at the time, so I got that and just digitally downloaded it and played it while we were, you know, in between shoot days and just downtime whenever I could. Nice. But um, I kind of warned him. I said, look, man, just so you know, this is going to be a hard sell. There's going to be there's going to be fans out there that just aren't going to be into this. This is This is very <laughs> different when I read when i read these scripts and i and like i said i blame netflix i blame constantine it's like you guys should have been clear about what it was you know this was the word adaptation should not been thrown around that's not what this is this is kind of like almost like a alternate parallel universe kind of thing you know it's it's its own it's its own thing i will stand behind the merits of almost every aspect of the show in terms of, you know, when I, when I read stuff about the acting being bad, I, that I don't get at all. I don't see that at all. Everybody in it, I thought was great. It's just a matter of preference, whether, because a lot of people liked Paola's performance and then a lot of people thought she was just chewing scenery too much. So that's a matter of preference and taste and whatnot, things like that. I was a fan. But I don't think anybody was... (laughs) What was that? I was I was a fan. Same. Yeah, a lot of people were, and I think she's great. You know. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have a lot of personal time with her. Um, sure. The girls, all the girls I did, obviously, I worked the most with uh, young Billy, 
probably the most because she had the most kind of mm. action oriented and effects oriented sequences. So everybody involved was great. You know, did six months of shooting there um, in South Africa in Cape Town. Um, so at the very tip of the continent. So and during this was all done during the height of COVID stage four mm. South Africa. So we were testing every other day, masking during our 12, 14 hour days. And then it was a it was also the very first show I worked on too, where because of the locations and because of the timing of things, we did not work a Monday through Friday. It shifted. We sometimes worked, you know, Wednesday through you know Tuesday or whatever. So we would work weekends and stuff like that. And then we would have like Thursday, Friday off, that kind of thing. So a lot of um interesting new developments on on the series and uh and just getting it done. So that's kind of where you know, my kind of history, it got me to that point. Hmm. Hopefully that was. <laughs> I mean, that was amazing. That was so much. Yeah. Like, Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose before we move into more about the show, like, cause you mentioned Netflix a couple of times, I'm sort of interested because they, I mean, I'm assuming maybe, but there's their kind of quality control generally seems to be incredibly high. So how, I know this isn't technically their show, obviously it's by Constantine, but how involved yeah. were they at, at all? Did they have feedback, I suppose, specifically on the VFX, because that's your area? And what was that like working with them? You know, we talked about the marketing and stuff, but as opposed to the well, VFX, what was that like? The other first for me, and this is this is straight up, this was another first where I, once we got into our groove and they were seeing the concepts and they were seeing the animation i got very little visual effects notes i'll be honest with you yeah it was pretty much just like they, they were hands off i could not they're right. the only things they commented on and it was hilarious at least for me were we would get notes on things like the ipad you know um facetime conversations things like yeah. that yeah <laughs> but anything and netflix initially had some they had input on the on the cerberus and i knew they would um, because what I wanted to do with the Cerberus and we, we ended up going mostly CG cause we had to, cause the interesting thing about that was, and this is something me and my producer didn't expect when we got to South Africa, we could not source any Dobermans that were either military bred or police bred that, that handy had any degree of aggro. The majority of Dobermans <laughs> we had access to were domesticated Dobermans. Yeah. <laughs> they were too good. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and we had this we had this whole scene, the way it was introduced and all the running and all the physicality of it. And it was constantly supposed to be growling and barking and you know um so they were they were trained up but to a point and the director I was working with the way the show works is it was done in blocks. So it was four blocks, each direct four directors, each director gets two episodes. So block uh block one was done by this director who told me she had all this visual effects experience, la 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 and uh turned out that maybe she did, but she certainly didn't it didn't come across that way right. while <laughs> didn't yeah. wasn't implemented. <laughs> yeah. So I mean we for the caterpillar sequence, for example, let me back up to that, that was um to her credit, she actually was the one that brought me that species of caterpillar. It's a, it's a, it's an actual real species that we based our boy 
off of it's called Bromea per se and the colors are the that kind of freddy krueger christmas red and green that's all legit with the black barbs on them but then we storyboarded the sequence out she actually did that with someone i'm like great cool all right you give that to me we'll do previs that's what we did when we come to shoot in march of uh 21 and uh we get there in downtown cape town and we go to shoot and she decides to throw all that out and riff it Oh, right. <laughs> I had to yeah. stay there. Normally, what is done, and this is something else that was, I was trying to get away from this. On these bigger shows, what you have hierarchy wise is you have a visual effects supervisor, then you have an on set visual effects supervisor. That person is tasked with being just that. They are on set, they are the ones responsible for working, working the action out and stuff like that. Because what that allows to happen is the visual effects supervisor then is freed up to have the meetings for the next episode and the episode after that, things like that, go on location scouts. There's a lot involved. I couldn't do that because I didn't have an on-set supervisor. There was no one in South Africa that I could source, so I ended up being the on-set supervisor as well as the visual effects supervisor. Wow. Um, so I ended up having to stay. So for those three days we were there at the Civic Center in Cape Town, You know, I had to make sure that you know when she would really go off the rails i had to be the one to pull the rein and say no that's not happening if you do that you're gonna balloon the budget and it basically everything else that we have slotted for episodes three through eight will not happen because you are being this short-sighted and this greedy so there was a lot of conversations like that good times um <laughs> and the dog was very similar you know she had all these shots planned and I'm like this it, it, and the main problem with it more than anything was like it just ended up being redundant. It's like, well, okay, how many times do you need to see the dog walking down the hall? We get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> we need the dog to go from A to B. We need the dog. We know the dog is after the girls. The dog has Billy scent. It's a focused, you know, for lack of a better term, killing machine. Right. We had to, we had to, we ended up in the interest of just making sure I got what I needed. We ended up, creating a second unit that all we did was we shot the plates for the dog ourselves. It was me and another gentleman, James AD, uh, who was second unit director in AD. And him and I worked and we plotted all that out and we shot it separately with no involvement from the first unit. So that's how we got all those shots with the dog. Um, and as a result of that, we did have several shots where like when the dog jumps toward the elevator, the girls get in it. That was our, we ended up getting this one really good dog named Diesel who had the right build he had the crop tail he had the cropped ears so he was perfect reference at the very least i finally had a dog for cg yeah. reference because that's what i was worried about i was like okay you know because i didn't want to do the cg dog i wanted to do live dog and augment you know yeah. take yeah. take add things to the dog or take things away you know like show some desiccation that type of thing but that's something else that this show was also was shying away from was this was more about infection as opposed to nobody here or was really raising from the dead nothing here was reanimating this was all about just being infected to the point of of dying or what have you so we didn't have those shots where you know you have holes in the zeros or things like that and you're seeing through to the background that kind of stuff we we shot away from the walking dead kind of yeah. component. Slowing flesh and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It, it 
uh, pustules, raw, exposed, flayed skin, things of that, you know, tumescent kind of qualities, things kind of very swollen and whatnot. So that was the one thing, honestly, we didn't, thankfully, I was worried about this, but the makeup wise was was solid enough that we didn't really have any visual effect shots makeup wise that we had to go in and fix anything. So that was a relief because we did have, while we were shooting, shots just kept adding on and on and on for time's sake. And also, we didn't have an armor on set. So every every firefight that you see in the show from episodes one through eight, every muzzle flashes us. Every gun firing where you're, you're seeing shells ejecting out of the port, that is us. Um, every handgun that fires and you see the slide go back, that is us. Awesome. It, was, it was all just, um, they had 3D printed weapons for the Umbrella Troopers, but they weren't functional, yeah. you know? And these guys also, they had to mine the action of like firing a fully automatic gun, things like that. You could go through, iterate, believe it or not, we had to go through iterations of that because sometimes people took it too far and it looked comical. It was like, no, no, no. Just yeah. Pump the brakes, think about it, and just, you know, don't be, don't be, you know, looking like you have Tourette's, you know, just, you know, take it easy. Mm. Um, there was just a lot of challenges to truth just to get the, sh the six months of production done. And wow. then when we came back to LA, we had about another six, eight months of post to finish off the visual effects. So, um, um is that, so you, you've spoken about kind of, uh, the disadvantages that like COVID gave you, et cetera. Um, like when it comes to the VFX and stuff, um, but was there, is there like one or two, uh, particular VFX moments in the show that are absolutely your favorite? And I want to amend on top of this. Are there moments in the show that could have been better VFX wise yeah. in your opinion? Yes. I think always. I mean, uh, I haven't worked on it. I, I'm kind of, um, I, I consider myself an A-type personality, and I strive for perfection, or my version of perfection. There really is no such such thing as perfection, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You strive for, and that was, I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about the white noise of the, of the internet trolls and all that shit. I just focused on while I was doing the show, okay, our liquor has to be the best. That's why I picked the vendors that I did for yeah. this. Interestingly enough, Constantine, they had, I don't know how, how familiar you guys are with this part of it, but Constantine had this longstanding relationship with a visual effects vendor named Mr. X. And it was not, it was not from <laughs> Mr. X, which <laughs> is a commonality. It was not created from the Mr. X that we know and love from the games. Uh, it's just, you know, coincidence. Anyways, Mr. X had done the movies for years, you know, done the Lakers, done all variations mm -hmm. of the Lakers, done it, done everything. I, I, as much as I like the Paul Anderson films, the one aspect of them I did not like was the visual effects. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, we can do better than this. <laughs> you did. Not, you definitely not, did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm not, I'm not, once again, that's not ego. It's just, I knew. I had to create a mark or a bar for myself, so to speak. So I knew, okay, we're going above and beyond this. And and Constantine wasn't used to that. So Constantine initially was like, oh, we'll just give everything to Mr. X. I'm like, no, you're not doing that. If you want me on the show, this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. you know. And I knew I wanted uh, this company called Important Looking Pirates, this great 
company out of Sweden. They do wonderful work on, they're a very, very small company, but they, they've done wonderful work on the Jurassic Park films. Uh, they've done some of the best shots in the Lost in Space series. These guys are fantastic. So I knew I have this crocodile, we're giving it to ILP. All right. What a great Nothing. name as well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, important looking pirates. And they're fantastic. I mean, they're, they're just really sweet guys. And they just, they're also, I ended up working with people that also kind of have the same um, aesthetic that I do and the same drive and the same passion for this stuff. So, and then I involved Rodeo, who I was, I've been a big fan of. And, and they have a history of working on Stranger Things and stuff like that. And they worked on the original Game of Thrones series. And so Rodeo ended up being, you know, my go-to horse. So Rodeo ended up doing the Caterpillar, the Cerberus, the Rat, the Spider, and the um, Lizard. Mm -hmm. The little Lizard that we have at the top of Episode 8. Oh, yeah. And then Mr. X, I was like, okay, you guys can do the liquor since you have a history with it. But the one thing you are not doing is you're not taking any of the models from the films, any of the previous models, and reusing those, repurposing those. Constantine wanted to do that because he wanted to save money. Wow. Yeah. Like, no, no, this is what I want. I had them concept up the liquor the way I wanted it. The supervisor at the at the time, this is this is an idea that it's in the series, but I wish we could have played it up more. I had two fundamental issues with the liquor, and they were I always thought the swollen, the tumescent brain was just kind of jokey. It was kind of like, okay, why the f*** does this thing have it? And why would you create such a large hitbox on this thing? You know what I mean? It just seems kind of redonkulous. And so I didn't want to go and change the look of it. You know, I didn't want to do anything that. I didn't want to badass anything. But I'm like, well, what if we do this? What if we have pieces of skull surrounding the base of the brain? So the brain... and then. Let's let's take the swollen nature of it down. Maybe this is an early gen, you know, liquor. You know, it isn't as far along. You know, and then the other thing I had a problem with, and even more so in the CG film, the CGI films. I'm like, are you me? Where the tongue is like 50 feet long. <laughs> <laughs> it's going. On, I mean, I love that scene where um, the tyrant, you know, takes it and you know twirls it around and yeah. stuff like that. You know. <laughs> But, and so honestly, um, what ended up happening is the supervisor, uh, and I'll always give him credit for this, David Jones, he said to me, well, you know, in the animal kingdom, the woodpecker has the world's longest tongue. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, how's that work? And besides, they have a long beak, but besides that, the tongue actually goes through the back of the head and wraps around the brain. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, we're doing that. Yeah. I'm like, let's do that. So we did that. So they're in the scene where the liquor is crawling down the top of the van and has the face off with Jade. It's in there. It's hard to see because it's a dark scene. Um, that was kind of like the other thing, going, getting back to your original question about what I'm most proud of. What I did really like about what we also did too is we had a lot of our bigger creatures were in broad daylight. The caterpillar was in broad daylight. There was no yeah. Our, you know, it was just like we knew we had to make that thing look, and that that one probably was our toughest. Probably besides the dog, that was our toughest creature because um, 
Constantine early on wanted to cut the Caterpillar because they had seen like our early um, previs where, and that's pre-visualization. Sorry if I'm not trying to, you know, over explain things here, but um, basically it, it works with the, you know, a completed model, but it isn't textured or, yeah. or finished. So it's yeah. usually a gratiated thing and it goes through all the motions. And so when they saw it, they were like, oh, what? Uh, this thing looks like a bird. And I'm like, guys, you realize it's not done, right? You, yeah. you, and believe me, you don't know how many times I have to have this conversation. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I'm not just saying that for laughs. It is it's borderline nauseating. Um, so it's like, no, no, no. Just pump the brakes. Let us just give us the time that we need to finish it. Believe me, when it's done, you're going to love it. So. That was done in broad daylight. And then, of course, the crocodile was broad freaking daylight. You know, we had a couple yeah. underwater shots, but, um, and I knew, like I said, IOP was going to nail that as well. So I wasn't too worried about it. The spider and the tran and the uh, liquor were kind of like, okay, yeah, we could do a scene with liquors in broad daylight, but that subterranean element and that whole, the whole thing with the channel was just rife for them to, to be there so it just made sense to to have that environment play out for both those creatures especially since they were in the same episode and they were very they were you know one sequence finished and the other one picked up almost right away mm -hmm. um so you know as far as i don't i don't think you know the creatures i'm very i'm happy with all of them i mean the dog was hard because um Everybody knows what a dog looks like. Everybody yeah. knows what a dog moves like. Even if you don't own a dog, it's just one of those commonalities. And uh, so we knew that, okay, we've just, we've got to get this right. We've got to make sure the dog has weight. So when it leaps in the air, it doesn't look like it's, you know, weightless, you know, everything. And when it lands, you've got to see the muscles react to the impact, everything, especially with, um, with a Doberman which has incredibly short hair, all you're left with is seeing all that muscle definition on the animal. Um, so we had to make sure we nailed all that. Uh, so that took a while, um, but I'm very happy with the creature stuff. There was some early stuff. Um, one of the very, very first sequences that most people wouldn't even realize was visual effects was when Jade is walking to the location uh in london with the bunny in the cage and she lets it loose and pricks it and sets it down that environment there and once again this was south africa that environment was dressed only from like the first floor down hmm. and this is we talked about the director with we said okay if we're not going to do the second floor or the third floor dress those to be post-apocalyptic to be you know degraded a porch you know properly and weathered then you're going to have to keep the camera you know, yeah. pointed more ground level. Well, sure. Sh while I was doing second unit on the Caterpillar, she decides to aim every goddamn camera up at the sky. So <laughs> we end up, and we'll have a before and after. I haven't gotten it yet, but we're going to do a before and after that sequence. So you'd have a building where ground level was completely aged and weathered, broken windows, and then everything above it was this perfectly pristine kind of beige color pristine windows it was ridiculous so it was not a part of our visual effects budget either so i'm like okay 
we're going to give that. There was a company I worked with called Mr. Wolf, and these guys came in and did that sequence, and these guys also did the majority of our muzzle flashes and gun um, shell casings, all that stuff, and impact hits. You know, we didn't have a lot of squib hits in the show either. Mm. But, you know, it was mostly it was mostly us. Um, so that was a great sequence. But then when she, you know, makes her way across Westminster Bridge, the very first shot, where she's got her head down on the ground and she, you know, the camera lifts and tilts with her uh, and reveals the background. That one I was never 100% happy with. And I don't blame the the vendor for that at all. It was just one of those shots where the very next shot is her wide back and we see Westminster, you see Big Ben in the background of Parliament and all that. That looks That looked great, I felt. But that first shot just didn't, it didn't quite have the same kind of feeling that the second shot did. And there were a couple other shots involving Brighton Freehold where the, um, the actual zero horde that we had to do CG with as well. I just felt like ah, that could have been better. Um, the one thing I did like about what we did there was it was the DP's idea. Oliver Miller was the DP of that block. Um, adding the flare overhead that was a nice touch and that of course made <laughs> that made the job harder because you had a traveling light source that's always a good time when you're doing you know any kind of visual effect it makes things more interesting and visually more impactful but it's definitely challenging um and then let's see what else i could think of it's like ah crazy about episode two you know pretty much was picking up dead dog he had the introduction of the rat at the end, getting mm -hmm. infected after after Albert tested the Billy's blood on it. Mm -hmm. Third episode had all our good our good stuff in it. You know, it had the rat fully infected. It had the liquor. It had the spider. Um, it also had our kind of like our our director wanted the, a nod to Resident Evil remake where Jill's looking at herself in the mirror. There's a sequence yeah. where Billy runs. And that, oh, dude, that was a nightmare because the way I would normally do that kind of shot, whenever you have a mirrored shot, is you do, you build both sides of the set, you know what I mean? And then you put a piece of glass between them. And then, so the way I wanted to do it was the stunt person was going to be wearing the camera rig. Since you don't see the stunt person's face, didn't matter. So on the opposite side, the mirrored side, you'd have Billy, the actress, um, Sienna, come in, do her her um, her motions and whatnot, and then the stunt performer would sync up to her. They would be synced timing, you know, with the hands and stuff like that. Whatever you see from the camera side, that would all sync up. Mm. That's not what ended up happening, of course. Uh, production. Production complained they didn't have the ability to build the other half, so we had to do it as a mirrored shot. So poor Sienna had to put on like a 20-pound, 20 25-pound camera rig that obliterated her entire torso. You had to get rid of it. <laughs> up to her, from her waist to probably the bottom of her chin. Wow. And so, yeah, we had to clean that up. <laughs> so that was... That was a nightmare. A company called Mars did that for me, and they did, they did a great job. That was a tough shot. Um, that was just one of those shots where it's like, okay, just so you know, this is going to be expensive. Um, I mean, I think what I would say is, you know, 
I speak for the guys as well as we all thought the digital effects were fantastic. And I think you've mentioned about your drive to get the attention to detail and stuff. And that obviously paid off because it's yeah. one of the strongest aspects of the show. But with yeah. VFX kind of being, you know, an all encompassing term, I don't know how much crossover you had with the practical side and practical effects and the same sort of thing, really. Is there anything in the show that you think worked really well or maybe not as well? Um, just from only, perspective the only really practical effects were the makeup effects of the zeros yeah you know that was and and that did that did work you know like these mm. zero queen uh candace the actress that you know uh, wore that makeup that was like a six-hour makeup job for her we didn't do any touch-ups to her her whole battle with jade and the chainsaw that was you know done digitally we added we did add some blood there was some practical blood there that's cool yeah um you know we decapitated her obviously that was us and then we had a uh uh fake head uh, all the headshots that were done like there's a sequence where after jade is trapped in that kind of in the brotherhood bunker in that room and she finds the grenade and she throws it and blows up and she comes out and she's all ptsd yeah. you know you know struggling and and she's jumped by a zero at the end of it, and his head gets blown off by Baxter. Um, that was digital. Um, you know, there was... I'm a big fan for, once again, working with practical and augmenting practical. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there were other things, like, that most people wouldn't know. I mean, I would have... It was another sequence that it didn't turn out great, but it was because of the way it had started the way it had been envisioned unfortunately a lot of times when we did work with practical what ended up happening is we did not see any version of that practical element until day of shooting right and which is not which is far from ideal Hmm. uh then that and that wasn't just us that was the director that was everybody on set this thing would just show up and we'd have to take it and um which once again just so wrong um there's that sequence in episode six at the end where uh and hell is gonna you know he's been he's been killed by wesker and they're gonna do the autopsy when what they they have the, you know the doctor there evelyn's there watching overseeing whatever and the guy cuts into him with the scalpel well the special effects guy brought in a you know, chest piece that had been made with a tuft of chest hair in the area the, the guy was going to cut. And it also looked like, I don't know about you guys, but it's like, I've never seen chest hair that it, it just looked like a tumbleweed glued <laughs> to the prosthetic. And I'm trying to be kind here. Yeah. So, and I'm like, and I've been, I've had surgery before. Um, and I'm like, you guys realize whenever, even an autopsy, you're mm. why would you cut through hair like that? You're going to shave it. There should not be any hair on him. Yeah. So they go and do it anyways, and it doesn't work, of course. So they're like, they turn to me and like, can you fix it? I'm like, yeah, sure. It's going to work again. You know, no problem. You know, eight more shots and, you know, just adds to the overall visual effects budget. So Mars, again, was the one that kind of helped us out with that. Because we knew we had, the only thing we had to do with that sequence is after it was, he was cut, he starts convulsing, and then this rash spreads. So we knew we had to do the rash, but cleaning up the prosthetic was not a part of the deal. 
Um, so, and then, like I said, the whole issue with the no armor. And so there were no blanks. There were no yeah. blanks that were fired. You know, we had um, what we call a lot of times with big visual effects productions, you'll do an element shoot day. And what that means is you'll go out to, you know, a stage or wherever you need to go and you'll shoot things like uh, muzzle flashes, yep. cartridge ejections, um, you know, sparks, you know, fireballs or fire plumes or just fire elements for something, things like that. So we had two days of that that we did and we captured a lot of those, as many of those elements as we could, you know. Um, and those are usually the nice thing about those days is those are just fun days because it's just usually me, my producer, and the special effects guys, and they love to blow shit up and we see <laughs> blown up. Like they, one of the last days I was there, we we shot this massive three stage fireball thing uh, outside Cape Town Film Studios for the crocodile when the crocodile was nuked. We knew, okay, let's try to get a real element for that when the missile comes down and, and it hits him and blows him up. But we knew we'd augment it as well as CG. And the element was great. I mean, the, the they lit it off and it probably went a good hundred feet in the air, you know, the fireball and the, and they also packed the, the, um, one of the element passes with, um, they went to, to a butcher shop. So they got a lot of sheep and cow intestines and they packed that there. And so it all gave this great, texture so i love working with those guys yeah. whenever i can um especially when it comes to blood related type things i don't like to do cg blood unless i really 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 have to um uh, you know i like to i like to work with the real with the real deal as much as possible so mm. hopefully that answered the question yeah for sure yeah so with all that said i mean we've been talking about especially on twitter as well we're talking about like potential what's coming in season two oh, um yeah. potential of what's coming i have another question for later on but for right now is there anything you can tell us about season two have come, yeah yeah um that could have come because lance reddit mentioned there was a script and just left it there vague um yeah there were, there were outlines all the way to the end and whatnot so um yeah i mean i you know at this point i don't think you know uh an nda is is valid because you know season two is not happening mm. but in the very first script i know it picks up um jade having been shot she makes her way back to she comes across the croc carcass that have been blown up and it's being you know pecked at by these ravens and then um she's she stumbles upon the umbrella you know the hq on the beach and she finds evelyn there who's still alive um and then they are attacked by a, a, a murder of ravens basically these <laughs> infected ravens, cool. just massive amount and um um jade stumbles across the um the flamethrower and so she uses that to take take the flock out <laughs> um and then meanwhile while that's happening bert uh and young in 2022 um bert's young jade and young billy escape and they make it all the way they're trying to get to I forget which airport somewhere in japan to see ada wong who's the uh the cliffhanger 
Yeah, that yeah, but they haven't even gotten that far. You know right. I mean? so, yeah, that's sure. up. But um before they even get to that point, they make they find their way uh to a a reservation and uh a wildlife reservation, one of the preserves out there in in South Africa. I forget mm-hmm. if it's I'm trying to remember the name of it anyways. Uh and meanwhile, Evelyn, this is once again, still 2022, she has taken and hell who's at this point, we saw his hand at the end. He's, mm-hmm. he's turned into a full fledged tyrant. She takes him, uh, in a special containment type device and basically kind of unleashes tyrant on, on Billy trying to track down Billy. So the tyrant has got Billy's scent. And wow. basically, oh, so that they're basically pulling a lot of references from the original games then because that's what I'm hearing. Right. Birkin and Sherry, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So also I love what I love about the fact that you mentioned the Ravens and stuff is like several yeah. things that this show did that the remake games didn't give us in recent years, like the spiders and actually yeah. something worthwhile with the gator. And now we've got, you know, kind of like the crows in this theoretical season two. So I really appreciate all that stuff. Yeah. So they they end up tracking. I forget how they end up tracking them, but they they do end up tracking them to this wildlife preserve. They release the tyrant, and the tyrant basically. There's several shots where you see the tyrant running, falls to the wall through the preserve, through the 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 fauna of the preserve and whatnot, and then uh, it finally catches up to them. And in that moment, the girls and Bert, I think their vehicle is broken down. And um, there's an elephant that comes out of the uh, the brush, and then immediately behind that elephant is the tyrant, who then, with the elephant in its way, rips through the elephant, rips it in half, on its way to get to Billy <laughs> and, and Jade, and they are saved <laughs> by Chris Redfield at that point. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he comes in. Uh, at this point, he, I believe there's reference to the wolf pack. And it, so it's him, and uh, he has a rocket launcher, and uh, he uses that on the tyrant. It, it, it does create a hole in the tyrant. <laughs> what, I had, I'd have to reference the script again. So, mm-hmm. But he is actually... Yes, he is mentioned, and he is he was featured, and that that because basically the tyrant elephant thing, that's how the first episode ends, and then the second episode uh, begins with that, and then that's when Chris's character is introduced, uh, in that in that moment, and then uh, because there's a sequence also I think in that episode where after that whole thing occurs, Chris goes back with the wolf pack, and there's conversations amongst themselves and stuff, and they talk. And I believe there's a reference to Lady D in that, but it's more about like it, it's that moment's happened already. So. Yeah, mm, it makes sense. Like because yeah. like we we were like Chris at this point, and if we were following the law, this would have been just after Village. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So yeah, would have would have made sense to have some kind of uh, link there. I love the fact that he's with the Wolf Pack. That's, that's yeah, great. it's dope. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Would have been dope. 
Yes, exactly. So, and then there were other things. Was there was a reference to Project Neptune? I know that. Oh, I mean, so this is for VFX wise for season two is any of this stuff, you know, this is obviously a job to you, but you're clearly a Resident Evil fan, which we really appreciate. But, you know, how far VFX wise had any of these plans gone for you? Had you just seen this on the page and started thinking about it uh, and not pressed on with anything, I imagine. But was there anything else that you were kind of sad that you didn't get to realize? Um, well, the first part of that is, um, I had broken down the first script, so I knew already that it was more expensive than the first, <laughs> of, uh, so I knew at that point, I knew, okay, we better be a hit. Otherwise this isn't happening. You yeah. know, yeah. here's the deal. Even if what I didn't want to be a part of is if the show to me had to be a hit, it had to be a runaway hit. Um, in order to continue with the budget, budget that we needed. yeah yeah is if they had greenlit a second season yeah. and they came to us and they tried to do a Walking Dead and say hey we got to take money Cheap. away from you yeah I would I would I would have walked away I would have done a Darabont I would have said this I'm sure. not doing that if yeah. you're not gonna, you know you're not going to spend the proper amount of money the show is going to suffer and the show. I was always telling everybody involved that was very clear. I'm like, look, this is a visual effects show. Whether you like it or not, this is mm-hmm. a visual effects show. You know, there's no two buts about it. You know, every episode has something. Five is about the only thing that five is like the one that didn't have a creature in it. That was about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Except for we had that little that little sneak peek of uh, Lisa Trevor. That was it. Yeah. The mm-hmm. um so yeah, we had that. We had this whole sequence at the Burj Khalifa where an outbreak occurs. So that was going to be massive. Um, tallest building in the world, and you have a you know you have a zero outbreak. Then there was the Project Neptune reference. Then there was zeros getting run down on tarmac from a massive like a C C ten or I forget what kind of plane it was trying to take off. <laughs> then there was then there was a giant infected mandrel that runs amok to san francisco which was this kind of king kong you know reference mm, yeah thing. that was that was a little bit later um i'm trying to remember what else it sounds like all of season two is pretty mapped out then in terms of story it was yeah hmm. it was yep so I just want to sort of like track back a little bit to what you were saying about the first season. And you mentioned a lot about stuff going on where an effect was done that needed to be fixed, if you like, if that's the correct word, uh, in post. So, you know, therefore, the visual effects budget's kind of starting to balloon. Um, yes. Do you think that the overall cost of the show when it was finally done was a contributing factor, the fact that it wasn't renewed at all? Yeah, it it always will be. It's easier for Netflix to renew a show that isn't critically liked, but it's but cheap. the audience likes it and it's inexpensive. That's yeah. like a brainer. It's like oh, that's done deal. You know, yeah. that's why there's a lot of shows that you'll see get picked up. Yeah. But when you have a show like um like ours, or um, I'm trying to think of another recent example um, uh, that suffered this. Kind of, uh, the the expanse know. suffered from it for a bit, yeah, a little, little bit. Mm. It's like, yeah, because department my department wise, we were we were one of the more expensive departments. But interestingly enough, we did not have the budget 
Uh, I think most people would be surprised at the budget we did have and what we were able to the bang for a buck that we got because our budget was nowhere near a Stranger Things budget, nowhere near that. Yeah, not even close. You know, the money that those guys have is whole whole nother level. Yeah, and I get why it is. You know, um, obviously because that that shows huge money maker for for Netflix. You know, and this was about. You know, getting another show. I mean, Netflix did want to see this go on. Netflix did want to ha- have this have a second season, a third season, whatever it was going to, you know, be. There was no doubt about it. But it is. It's hard to justify it when, you know, the numbers aren't quite. The numbers aren't there. Um, then you factor in uh, critical response was like didn't it didn't achieve that, you know. Um, critical praise, but then you had the audience, mm. audience just going in, and you know we we were reviewed bombed. The yeah. holy high hell, and matter of fact, I've seen the same thing with the Lord of the Rings show. Yeah, that audience score on that is dismal, not as bad as ours, but it's pretty bad. Yeah, but at least the critical is high. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, they have that going for them. So when Netflix looks at okay, the critical is not high, the audience is like dismal. You know, what I mean, they're, they're looking out of interest because obviously, you know, we talk about Twitter and stuff and loud people on Twitter, but are they looking at metric sites? You know, what sort of feedback are they getting? I don't. I, I think that they are. You know, and they're they're looking at that, and I don't. I think for the most part. Twitter responses and stuff like that, they kind of just shrugged off that, you know, because there was a lot of, you know, yeah, they've been dealing with the racist stuff for a while now. And then it was apparent there was people who hadn't even watched the show. They just, yeah. you know, yeah. wrote it off for the sake of writing it off kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, look, I'm not going to be um, a staunch defender you know the show the show was far from perfect it was definitely flawed i mean like i said our our element of it i have no problem i have no qualms no ego in saying we were the best element of the show absolutely agreed yes you know uh, but i also think there's performances there that were also like i said i I love lamp i love young girls i loved sienna yep tamara um you know, so, but there were, there were issues. I knew, I knew lines like, you know, the whole in Zootopia, but there, but was interesting for me though, is how people took one line out of context, dumped yeah. that on Twitter and then used that as a reason for why the show sucks. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's really yeah. stupid. That kind of moronic stuff, you know, I mean, believe me, there's a lot of stuff I've just let slide off of me because you kind of have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to ever come across like I'm just, you know, um, just defending the show at every turn. You know, you're what I mean? you're, you're, in, you're in good company here, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very much so. I, I, yeah, I think you probably saw I made a tweet a little while back that said that even if you don't like the show, there's not really any point in celebrating the show being cancelled. That. That's what because really... now all you're really doing is making Resident Evil that community that cheers everything yes. that fails. And yeah. as I say, you don't have to like the show, but what yeah. you're doing is showing companies that there's no point in doing anything with the property. And so, not to kick the hornet's nest again, because I've got like 
I muted the tweet immediately because I was like, oh no, what have I done? You know, yeah. but what, what do you think it is about the show that really, really made some people so negative? I, it's just the one thing I, the one thing that's constantly parroted, and it just happened yesterday, is some dude, some guy was like, oh, just, you know, it, it's so simple. Just do the mansion incident, you know? Why is it so hard? And that is like really that... So you're going to be the thousandth person? I mean, I get it when someone says something over and other people, but it doesn't always necessarily make it right or Mm -hmm. make it, you know, it's like, look, I get why, you know, Welcome to Raccoon City was was an attempt at that, but then they they shoehorn in parts of of Resident Evil 2. So it, it wasn't just solely about the mansion. And he, what I find interesting is, um, I'm reading the novels by S.D. Perry, and I'm I'm mm. halfway through the first one. If you're going to do the first game, use that novel as your blueprint. I'll be honest with you, the George Romero script, I was like, what the f*** is Chris is a rancher? What? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what? Completely different. <laughs> yeah, and... I couldn't even, you know, and then there was the 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 obligatory sex scene. Just you know, okay yeah. between him, and Jill, yeah. and Jill. Mm-hmm. Okay, you don't need that. Uh, and then there's just weirdness where you know, like for me, I why they had a big component of it involving Plant Forty Two. I'm like, really, you're gonna you're gonna do Audrey from f-ing, um Little Shop of Horrors? that I was amazed at like how 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 kind of bland it was and i was like wow and and i know i'd read the history of it and how they had problems because with the rating of it like robert colzer robert colzer of constantine has been involved since the very first film and he was involved all the way through this one as well um he was actually the guy that first said oh the caterpillar looks like a turd we need to cut it and i'm like <laughs> oh, and what's funny is once i kind of proved that i never heard from robert again um, he just mm-hmm. kind of he stopped because part of our process, just to back up a little bit, was um, as a supervisor, you know, I talked to every visual effects supervisor at a facility, whether it be ILP, Rodeo, Mr. Wolf, Mars, whoever it is, and say, okay, this is what we're doing. And as versions start coming in, comps, composites, and stuff like that, I review them, I go over them, I give notes, I'm like, this is working great, let's do more of this. Okay, this isn't working so much. Let's try this. I also totally instill in this idea of like, hey, I'm not going to have all the answers. If you guys have an idea you want to try, show it to me. Throw it out there, and I'm all open to it. That's how we got to the liquor tongue, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm very, yeah. very invested in that kind of thing. I, I don't, I don't ever believe that my vision, my ideas are are it. You know, I want to work with people that make my ideas and just the idea in general better um so you know i i've been reading this this first book and i'm like okay she she had an opportunity to to use the line oh here you go you know barry's giving her uh, the 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 lock picks and stuff and i'm waiting i'm like oh my god she's gonna throw in the f-ing line she's gonna have barry she's gonna have barry say hey here you go jill you're the master of unlocking but she didn't you know what I mean? She 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 created like this 
natural discourse you know what i mean so the dialogue is not campy campy wesker's not coming off like a, a you know a robot or like mm-hmm. uh you know there's actually there's a thought process behind it i'm like jesus no one has mentioned to me that though interestingly enough out of all the people who've bitched it's always been oh just make it like the first game you know just just do the first game just do the first game and it's like uh it's it's not that easy and and you wouldn't no no self-respecting writer is going to just take the dialogue from that first game or the reading <laughs> game into a script and expect someone to finance it it's you know i mean it's just not going to happen yeah um that's why you know what's going to be real interesting i'll tell you right now what's going to be real interesting is when the last of us drops and people say see See, this is how you adapt a video game. Uh, this is what Resident Evil should do. My response to that will be this. Yeah, you don't want to know why? Because The Last of Us was was written really well. The game itself, <laughs> <Yeah>. that story <laughs> was mint. You know what I mean? That is, it's one of my favorite games of all time, that first game. Don't yeah. get me started on Last of Us Part Two. I, <laughs> not going to get into it um but i absolutely adore the first game i've played it many many times i have not dropped the 70 bones to get the remake um i'm gonna wait until that comes down but um, (laughs) i digress um but i adore that game and and also i think with the last of us I, i there's no doubt in my mind when that thing drops that will be the video game adaptation to beat all video game adaptations because hbo did approach it smartly hbo did say okay i don't know if you needed to involve Druckmann, but whatever the fact that they hired craig mazin to write the script that was more than enough it's like okay he's gonna work it's a retelling of the original story that's great and i i don't and then they cast it really well you know i mean so it's like but that you can't i know people are going to do it it's like that's resident evil and last of us are apples and oranges man Mm -hmm. you know um they they couldn't be more different you know um one of them is incredibly grounded you could do you could do a grounded resident evil movie or series but then you still get those detractors saying this isn't my resident evil this is right i think if you were to make it so grounded it loses the heart doesn't it like you know Speaking as all of us here as Resident Evil fans, some of what makes it great is the fact that it is ridiculous and you have giant plants and you have giant sharks and all these things. And obviously that's reflected in the Netflix show in different ways, but it is in there and that's part of Resident Evil. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. You can't make a super serious Resident Evil film because you'll have the same reaction of, oh, you're missing all this stuff. And I guess, I don't know, maybe it's a, a concern to have from certain people, obviously have way different perspectives on it way across the board. Uh, is there a concern maybe that Resident, you know, you talk about Last of Us being adapted truly, which is great, and let's hope so, but is Resident Evil in the eyes of a lot of, in, in Constantine films, as obviously most importantly, is it just the Umbrella logo and a bunch of names, do you think, at this point? I, I mean, I will, in, in thinking about it, having gone through this whole process, you know, almost, almost two years on this, um, having gone through it all, I do... I do think the IP would be best served if you're going to go down this road again. Uh, involve a different production company. Yeah, yeah. I think it is time. Okay, you've done you've done the movies. Um, 
you you've done a, a attempt with the tv series you know and you've got the cgi movies which are you know done on their own or whatever so you have all this content i mean resident evil is out of all the out of any video game I, the content that has been sprung forth of it has just been staggering and that's why to your point that the the people that celebrated the demise of the show just kind of blew me away because it's like okay when you do that you realize you're propagating the idea that okay let's not do any more of this mm-hmm. um and you're gonna have you're gonna have failed attempts the the problem with resident evil is yes i get those people those legitimate people probably like you guys are all these legitimate people who feel like man time and time again it just isn't done it isn't done right it isn't it doesn't these things don't have the heart and soul of of resident evil um you know and it's and it is a hard thing to do you know with this game i'm not saying necessarily the last of us is easier to adapt but when you're already starting with a strong foundation you're starting with characters that are well developed. You're starting with the story and a script. You know what I mean? That goes a long way. But then when you go back to Resident Evil One, and that's why it cracks me up when people say it's simple. It's like it's not, man. Because I'm telling yeah. you right now, you if you wanted to do a straight movie of the game, that for the first two games are just the first game, you would have to get a writer in there who could punch it up and yeah. be like, okay, what do we do here? What do we do? What are these characters' motivations? How how could how can we tell a proper backstory? And that's what I was liking about reading that book by S. D. Perry. I'm like, okay, she's she's doing this, like the, the giving Jill the backstory that her dad was this famous thief or whatever, and so she has that kind of those genes in her. So you ra- you you know you she was able to rationalize. Okay, this is why she's adept at you know picking locks or whatever without saying, oh, you're the master of unlocking, you know. <laughs> Do you- do you do you think that the, it could be put into a novel, season two or three or four, or a comic book or something like a Kickstarter or something like that? I think a comic book would be a good way to go. Yeah, yeah, because I, I, yeah, I think you could do it. I mean, I'm trying to remember what else was what else was thought of for season two. They had the arcs, the character arcs, all mm-hmm. plotted. I think at one point too, don't quote me. I think at one point, which would have been probably the more, the more interesting and fascinating thing that I regret that I won't be able to do was there was going to be a. I believe there's a bit where Bert turns into a liquor, and we were going to actually Whoa. see. That happen. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we were going to see him you know the the skin and everything and just the the whole degradation to a liquor form apparently that was something that andrew had <laughs> had worked out i can tell you now uh you know the obviously the continuation of the story people are interested in because people want to know what happens to bert yeah. you've just broken so many hearts <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i know i know yeah he ended up being that was the yeah, that was another one it was like some people, I think generally, though, a lot of people did like that character, you know. I didn't know what to make. It was funny because I thought for sure, okay, I'm like, oh, boy, this whole Olive Garden breadstick thing, this is this is really <laughs> right. ruffle some feathers. And then uh, probably the one scene that ruffled the most, and I'm like, really? 
was the the whole dual lupa thing lipa thing with uh mm. dancing yeah. yeah yeah and as but, you get as you say that was one of those things that was taken out of context and pointed at yeah unfairly well that was just that was just billy having fun with her and just showing off mind control that's yeah. all that was yeah and you know yeah. i mean and people thought oh it's just wow this character just breaks into karaoke it's like no and the other thing i, I thought this was interesting too i don't know if you guys People were mystified by why Evelyn shoots her son as opposed to Billy uh, after after Simon's been bit. People actually, I was amazed by this. People actually had the gall of like, what the hell? Why is she, that's so stupid? Why is she shooting her son? I'm like, you realize Billy's a walking billion dollars, you know, mm. to build yeah. immune. And, and Evelyn needed to know why. I'm yeah. like... Really, that didn't get that didn't come across. Apparently, it didn't. I mean, there were certain things that I was like, "Wow, I guess, I guess it just wasn't explained well enough," you know. Because that moment I thought was pretty crystal clear, but I had the benefit of being being there while I was shot and reading it in advance, and you know, so there's that kind of weird bias for me uh, when working on a show like this. Is because um, someone else had mentioned. I don't know if it was who had told me. No, it wasn't. It was this Ben guy, I think, on Twitter, who had mentioned, and I'd wondered about this too. I'm like, could the show have benefited from a weekly drop as opposed to all at once? Yeah, interesting thought. Oh yeah. Mm. No, would it have worked? You know, I mean, I know there were people out there that said that. Oh, I couldn't watch. You know, I got ten minutes in, and I, I, you know, I stopped watching. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, yeah it makes you wonder because i think even people like that if they were kind of given it in a piecemeal fashion they might have been able to chew on it a bit more it's like i've got this whole week to potentially take on this first episode and see how i get on with it and you know on our discord server we were kind of tracking it week by week and seeing how well it was doing on the netflix charts on you know different parts of the world and it did it sustained for quite a while Obviously, yeah. some of that's to do with the fact the name value of Resident Evil alone. But if it was a weekly thing, if Netflix did that, you'd see that kind of chatter that these shows generate for a lot longer. Yeah. And it, it was also with Netflix, too, especially now, release timing was also an issue. You know, it's like, oh, God, when we heard how close it was, because it's like, okay, uh, Umbrella Academy season three dropped. Then a week mm. later, season four part one of of uh strange things dropped yeah yeah two week window so well really stranger things had a two-week window you know to yeah you know, and we dropped then two weeks after we dropped sandman dropped yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah so, so it's like and and honestly and i know i know sandman is going through they're not going through sandman didn't go through any of the did in terms of review bombing or racist bullshit. I know some people had a problem with the changing of um, the one character uh, from male to female, but uh, that was another good great show, man. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of the comic, but I respect Neil Gaiman, and that was, once yeah. again, that was another show where my favorite episode, I think it was five, where him and Death are talking. Yep. Brilliant episode. Most of that dialogue is from the comic. Like, not a word, sentence, line changed. And mm -hmm. it's like, that just goes to show you. It's like, you know, um, it all does begin with 
with the writing, with the story, with the yeah. script. You have to have a functioning, interesting, compelling story. If you it, don't have that, then you know you're to and that's what I think for right or wrong, I have to give Netflix credit and Constantine credit and Andrew credit. They tried to do that with this. They tried to give it a, a new story, a unique story. Yeah. You know, um, but it just didn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't land, you know, the, the way it needed to. And I, and I think it is a shame because I think, I think they were getting, gaining steam or they would have gained steam with season, uh, with uh, season two, mm. you know, based on what I had seen uh, and based on what I was reading and what they were trying to do, bringing Chris in and then Ada was going to be later on in the season. She was probably going to pop up somewhere around once they got to Japan, somewhere around four episode four or five, I think. Um, I did want to ask a slightly broader question kind of feel free to bring it back down to the show but i don't know if you feel this way but vfx particularly on twitter and online these days and from video game fans as well is often it feels like it's under the microscope more than ever kind of in the past you know you look at what marvel does and you hear stories from video game crunch and marvel crunch and you know yeah. the way the pandemic has affected everything yes. um and then also something else that kind of links to it vfx is kind of in the wider conversation now when you look at things on youtube like vfx guys react and stuff like that yeah which is incredibly popular and something i enjoy uh, those guys can be sometimes a bit scathing but i know they analyzed some resident evil as well but i suppose my point is do you feel like you know you've been in the industry for this whole time you've been along for the journey of vfx through all its kind of iterations do you feel like now more than ever things kind of live or die on the vfx you know uh, and you know, what's your kind of take on all that thing? Yeah, I mean, they do. It, it's, it, it's interesting because, you know, I brought up Salmon, right? I, I loved, casting was perfect on that show. Music, great. Story, fantastic. Acting, fantastic. Direction, fantastic. The environments, beautiful, gorgeous. You know, every time you went to, whether it was Death's World or Desires or... Um, uh, dreams i'm sorry you know beautiful you know because you know at one point dreams was in total dilapidation because he'd been imprisoned that was great um but what was interesting about that show is i thought the creatures just looked like jim henson puppets you know <laughs> i i thought they were goofy um they totally took me out of the show um and that was an example where I felt like that was a disservice because it was like, wow, everything else to me was like gorgeous. You know, the way it was, hell was interesting, you know, uh, the way it was rendered and the way it looked and whatnot. Um, and some of the, the, the effects animation stuff, the spells and stuff like that, you know, were, were great. Um, you know, but then the creatures and I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, and that, that, can be can be a problem like up until season four of stranger things i thought the demogorgon was like okay it's serviceable yeah but then four comes along and rodeo gets involved and rodeo does the big moment yeah. at the end of episode seven where they unleash it on hopper and the other russian prisoners and the thing just goes through them like knife with you know to butter 
and it's so well done and so well executed. Everything about it was just great. Yeah. Um, I was actually off that they didn't win Book of Boba Fett one because mm. yeah, there's an example. There is an example right there. The problem I have with Marvel and the Star Wars, um, the Star Wars shows is you know. Marvel's just continuing like, oh, look at look at uh, Phase 5 and Phase 6, and they're, they're pumping out shows with characters no one's heard of. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, what are you doing? Why is this necessary? Why can't you just pump the brakes? Can you do, like, one film a year and maybe two shows, you know, one at the top of the year and one at the fall, you know, that type of thing? No, 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 no. They got to keep cranking this stuff out, and the effects end up suffering because... Mm-hmm. The schedule is truncated. And the other problem with Marvel is Marvel, as a client, is as indecisive as you can get. Those guys will change their mind in the 11th hour, not giving a damn for anyone or anything. They just will make it. No, you know know what? You know, the Avengers all have to have new new uniforms when they do their their space travel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. The fact that Marvel gets away with putting clothing, digital clothing on people is absolute bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, and that is the biggest waste of creativity and money I've ever seen. The, the fact that they did that in the Avengers films uh, was just criminal in my opinion because it's kind of like, you know what? This is where you need to, as EPs, as creatives, a director, whatever, you need to just say, this is what the costume is going to be. This is what they're going to be wearing. Manufacture it, please, wardrobe department, and be done with it. Same with thing with Spider-Man. For Spider-Man to have a digital suit, that is ridiculous. And it's just... So Marvel, for me, I have... Honestly, guys, I mean, I just speaking for myself, I mean, I know people like Marvel films and stuff like that. I have no desire to work for them because I know how they I know how they work, and that's not the kind of visual effects I want to do. There is spectacle to some of their stuff, but I felt honestly sure. for me. I think uh, what you're saying though is not not a secret. Like everybody, there seems to be a wider opinion that the effects are slipping because of those schedules, and so I don't think you're kind of speaking out of turn. No, it's just I mean, for me, Marvel peaked at uh, Captain America and Winter Soldier. That to me was that that's that was the peak um in terms of story and just how you how you composed i mean that's where the russo brothers blew up and then for me the russo brothers never got back to that level of uh, directing and filmmaking um i felt that film was on a whole nother level and i was excited i was like if this is what marvel movies are going to look like going forward yeah God, set me up and then Maybe. then we get the latest thor movie which i can't even go see I went to see Spider-Man No Way Home, which everybody raved about. It was the greatest thing since sliced milk. And I'm like, oh my God, the humor is just so forced in these films. I just can't, I can't handle it. Um, so, and the visual effects, you know, are just like, you know, window dressing. And I think visual effects are being used for a lack of genuine creativity and general, and, and they're ultimately the, the ultimate problem solving. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, we need a set here, but we don't know what it is. Okay, well, we'll, all right, just blue screen it and we'll figure it out in post. Yeah, yeah. Why why do you have to do that? Why can't you, why can't you do a Dune? Why can't you think like that? Why can't you build that? Is that just because they have so much money? Do you think they don't spend the time thinking about it because they know? I think that is, and I think, 
I really don't know. You know, I can't speak. I don't want to turn this into Marvel bashing. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> you know, but um, it's just there. You know, for me, I I gravitate toward projects that I have a strong bond or connection to. That's why I went after Preacher. That's why I went after Resident Evil. That's why I'm I'm very interested in things like the Bioshock film. That's another. Mm. That's probably another one of my. It's my one of my all time favorite video games is Bioshock. I'm interested in the um, Horizon Zero Dawn series. Oh, in God speaking of my War. language. <laughs> you know, God of War uh, at Amazon, uh, Mass Effect at Amazon. You know, all those are very, very. They're right up my alley. That's that's all. Those are my wheelhouse. You know, I don't. Um, I mean, I had a good time working on i wasn't familiar with it but when when the show went on hiatus before we filmed it i think because of covid early on i got to work for six months on shadow and bone i didn't oh. know what it was a friend of mine uh needed help and he's like dude can you help me? i'm like sure no problem and i'm like holy shit, this is really good you know um <laughs> love shadow uh, and bone oh uh, yeah and and so um um they started doing season two while I was doing Resident Evil, so I couldn't get on that. And um, there's talk of them adapting Six of Crows, which I love that book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, if that happens, I want to be involved with that because those characters are just great. Um, so I tend to gravitate toward toward content and IP like that. And, and that's why I went after, you know, sight on scene Resident Evil and uh and sometimes you're just it's like a craps game you know crapshoot you know you're just rolling the dice and you're hoping that it you know comes out case in point like i watched it on a whim and i watched it before it blew up but jesus christ man that arcane show holy yeah (laughs) i'm trying to get everybody (laughs) in first aid spray to watch that show nobody has yet i need them to watch it (laughs) <laughs> oh my God, you are you are doing yourself it's criminal that you have not watched it i've watched All it right. twice you'll add it to the list um, yeah. everything <laughs> about that show is and you know that one that one is going to go down in as and you know they adapted a game that i didn't even play i'm, I'm not into league of legends i didn't know vi or uh, uh, jinx you know but i sat down and watched it and i binged it out of it i was like oh my god the, the animation by the company in Paris called Fortiche is just like they don't use any motion capture. It's all keyframe animation, but the animation in that show is like butter. It's some of the smoothest animation I've ever, ever, ever seen. The painterly style of it, uh, everything, the directing, the voice acting, the music, the score, the, the, the soundtrack is just beautiful. Um, I'm sold. <laughs> That had a long genesis, and that's honestly just for you guys. That's the kind of show I do want to be involved with. I want to be involved with a show that is creatively challenging, and that show was because when they first started doing it, Fortiche was like 30 people, and they had to get up to like 300. And they had a period where they were stopped down after they did the pilot, you know, because uh, Riot didn't, didn't think it was coming along, and they had to hire some other people to help flesh it out. And look at them. They walked away with an Emmy just this last Saturday. Mm, yeah. It's, one, it's mm. won 20 awards this show has since it's come out. 20. And it's served everyone. Yeah. 
it was it's just truly remarkable and that's the kind of thing and i like that because i also love love death and robots love that as well yeah yeah it's yeah. awesome i like those little those little stories and and the unique way and all the varied type of animation that you see within that one that's why that one's really unique and really cool uh, i can't wait for season four because i love i've loved every season mm. uh so i love that kind of stuff too um but this you know it just unfortunately you know so many things have to come into place for these adaptations to to succeed a lot of it is i don't know if it's luck or just timing but so many things have to kind of align at the right at the right moment the right time in terms of people behind it people creating it the creators the eps uh the money getting infused into it so many things have to gel at the same time before anything is even made and then you then you go through the production process and you hope that you know your actors are all right and, and spot on and it's just you just don't know you you don't know until it's dropped on the audience um but i think there's something to be said for you know trying to find a smart way to include an audience say you know like what would have happened if netflix had said hey let's show like the first two episodes of resident evil to fans of the show and get their opinion on it and you know i'm a big believer in that because um Shows like 24, which I loved, and shows like even the recent Breaking Bad and um, Better Call Saul shows all, all changed as they were being made mm. due to audience reaction because of, because of social media and stuff like that. Like the whole Jesse character, there was a character that, you know, he wasn't supposed to go beyond three episodes. You know what I mean? It's stuff like that. It all can can change for the better. I'm not saying that you know the audience needs to have a shareholder stake in it but getting getting people's reactions to things like that early on i think are beneficial look you know look what happened with the sonic movie i was just yeah. gonna say yeah right example yeah that wasn't even solicited advice it just they made the mistake of dumping it out there and they horrified people and there was such a backlash on it uh for good reasons i mean come on you've given them human <laughs> i mean that was that was the shit of nightmares who said oh we can't really criticize it it's it's up to them it's their decision which i sort of understand but as a vfx guy yeah you you can appreciate that something like that goes out and that's the reaction and you think okay this is fair maybe we can look at this again yeah because like you know like for example my work you know like with the creatures and stuff like if you know people or even just the show people have I'm all for constructive criticism, you know what I mean? Um, you know, if someone has a complaint or a, a problem or an issue with something I may have done or, you know, oh, I like this, but I didn't like this because of this. I'm all for it. Same with the show. It's like people say, I just didn't like it. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I respect that. But why? What part of it? What What didn't you like, you know? Yeah. That type of thing. I'm more responsive to that rather than people just saying, oh, the show's dark. And then that's it. It's like, really? <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, I try. I try when I'm also working with vendors, and you know, sometimes when as a visual effects supervisor, you'll see a first pass or something, or you'll see something, you'll see a shot that just does not improve. 
you keep getting notes. You keep giving the same note. That's even more frustrating. When you give the same note on something and you don't see a change iteration after iteration, it gets very frustrating and you have to know how to navigate that because, you know, yeah, you could drop the hammer and say, look, all right, we're going to take this and give it to someone else. And sometimes you do have to do that. Yeah. Um, it does. It does get to that point. But I try to with what I do, I try to be positive with everything and then try to get the best out of people, even if it's something that I don't like, you know, it's like, OK, I appreciate that. But let's try this instead or can you know, let's. Okay, that's not working. And then I have to factor in, you know, Andrew's opinion on it. And then it goes to Constantine and their opinion on it if they weigh in. And then finally Amazon. Amazon has the final say with the with the visual effects of their shows. I, I was just gonna say, I think it's funny you exactly attached attached onto what the audience reaction probably would have been better off being. It's like, this isn't necessarily for me. How about we do as you said, the mansion is an or whatever, rather than just screeching into the void. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To close this and sort of bring it home, um, do you have any final words for the Resident Evil community? I think specifically the people that are listening that enjoyed the show or at least open-minded to it. We talked a lot about that negativity and that negative reaction. Um, you know, just as a kind of, you know, as we said, this is a bit of a post-mortem. We really appreciate you kind of really getting candid about this, but is there anything that you'd just like to say, uh, you know, to the fans of the show? I, you know, I just would like to say thanks to anybody and everybody that, that watched all eight episodes, sat through them all. Uh, and then by the end, if, if you didn't like it, that's fine. Uh, if you loved it, Hey, that's even better. I, but I appreciate all kinds of fans regarding the show, as long as, you know, they can explain. I even like to hear, okay, what, what, if you really liked it, what, all right, tell me what part of it did you like? You know, what, what did you really respond to? What, what resonated with you? And then if, once again, if you didn't like it, if you can articulate what it was, it's, it's good for me to hear that because it's, it's good to know that going forward on other works and stuff like that. Mm. Um, So I definitely appreciate the general, you know, fandoms. I'll, I'll in, in tweets. I often use quotes when I when I refer to fans, and what I'm doing there is just referring to you know the the gatekeepers, the the people that yeah. just yeah. feel staunchly that no, you can't you can't do this to Resident Evil. You can only do this, and it's like no, it's I'm sorry if if that's how it's going to be, then you're going to stagnate the IP quicker than anything. Yeah. You have to be open to you have to be an or open to some interpretation um uh and like i said i th- i think maybe hopefully we'll get to a point i don't know what the timetable is where that uh, where the title reverts back to capcom and then then it'll be interesting is capcom gonna gonna risk it again is capcom gonna give it to another film or television production company or are they just hold on to it you know feeling that they've mm-hmm. been you know, um, we didn't have much interaction with them uh, during it, you know. Uh, mm. They could weigh in, and they would generally weigh in. I know they weighed in a lot on the creature design for the film, but they literally saw what we were doing, and they had no feedback. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah, get, so, full, get full T-shirt on it. <laughs> What's that? Get full T-shirt on it. They'll sort it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, Kevin, we really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. Um, this has been enlightening, certainly. Yeah, anytime. You know, I, I like speaking about the show, and I like hearing people's you know opinions of it. And 
I'm not afraid for telling me, you know, people telling me, you know, their, their harsh opinions on it. I'm, I'm fine with it. You know what I mean? It's all learning process and, you know, hopefully Constantine and Netflix will learn from this experience as well. Cause you know, if they go into another licensed IP like this, whether it's resident evil or something else, you know, hopefully, I think there's things here, takeaways that can be applied to um, bettering content down the road, you know, especially mm -hmm. if we're seeing more and more video game adaptations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, all of us here, we all had mixed opinions on different parts. But, you know, as we said at the beginning, the CGI was definitely the strongest part that we all agreed on. Even, you know, it wasn't necessarily all amazing, but when it was amazing, it was truly amazing. And we've had multiple conversations since on our Discord community just about the spider alone and how it may well be the best CGI spider of all time. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Appreciate that. Well, nothing else remains for me but to thank our contributors, our patrons, and our listeners. Join the First Aid Spray Discord server to become part of our community and hear the show early and unedited. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and more. All of these links and all of our content can be found at fasprepod.com. You can listen to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcasting apps. And if you like what you hear, please please do leave us a review where you can and spread the good word. Don't forget you can support the show by picking up some merch or at patreon.com forward slash FA Spray Pod for as little as $1 a month. Uh, it's funny, actually, Kevin, you mentioned the S.D. Perry novels. In our next episode, we'll be covering the book that novelizes Resident Evil 3. So make sure you, if you're watching this on YouTube, hit subscribe or wherever else you're listening to this, make sure you follow us so you can uh, pick that episode up very, very soon. Thank you to the panel. You can follow all of us individually at Sinaiac underscore one, two, three. James is at Moist Outlets OFF. Kelsey is at K underscore D underscore B underscore. And Kevin, I'm sure I'm going to butcher this probably. Kevin is at Fushi Patas. Is that how we say that? Fushi Patas. It's, it's Spanish. It, it, ah. It's real quick. It's kind of, it just translates to like stinky paws or stinky feet. It's a reference <laughs> to one of my dogs. Uh, <laughs> I love it. What a wholesome end. Thank yeah. you all for listening, Kevin. Thank you for joining us and have a good week. How did the podcast go? Really? You thought I'd sacrifice my perfect record just for an interview? An exclusive interview that I couldn't make? Kevin was good? Yeah? You had a good time? Fantastic. Yeah, I love that spider. Anyway, it turns out I actually was on the podcast. I'm just the secret character. Mr. President. Mr. <laughs> President.